You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgil. Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe and you're very welcome to the podcast. I walked the Camino de Santiago for this special Tree Park Camino podcast series this year, where I interviewed many interesting people, including fellow walkers, pilgrims, guides and historians. The Camino is over 800 kilometres from the Spanish border in the Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela in Galicia, and it typically takes a walker between 30 and 35 days to complete. Part two today, I talked to Catherine Murphy, the journalist, who has walked the Camino many times and she gives us a great guide to the many ways to do the Camino. We then hear from some guides on the Camino and then we finish off with a fascinating interview with the American writer Curtis Williams on the history of the Camino. The Camino is a truly magical pilgrimage and I hope these three episodes convey in some small way why the Camino is so special to so many people around the world. We will have the final third part of this special series next Tuesday. Now, my first interview with Catra Murphy. How, how many times have you actually been on the Camino? You've been on loads, haven't you? I think I, I did my first one in 2005. I think I've done maybe five or six different bits and pieces here and there. So the first one was the French way, the Camino Frances, and we got as far as Los Arcos, um, traveling from France. And then I went on to Burgos. So my next section should be La Masetta on the French way. And then I've done a section of the Northern way. So that was Santander to, so it was from Cantabria into Asturias. I've done the Finisterre way, which is one of the only ones that takes you from Santiago um, out to Finisterre, or I actually ended up in Mushia. And that's the the coast of death, as the pagans used to call it. They, they thought the sun died along that coast. The, the end of the world, Finisterre, and uh, I loved that, coastal sections. I've done part of the Portuguese way, but actually we started it in Spain, Bayona in Spain. And again, that brings you 100 kilometres into Santiago to Compostela, so you can get your, your credential, your Compostela at the end, say you've done your 100 kilometres. And I've done, I've done something else, can't remember now, now that you asked me. The sailing, the sailing one. Oh, the sailing, last year, yeah. I don't, I'm not a sailor, I don't sail, but um, someone said to me, oh, you can now sail the Camino. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm a big Camino fan. I love the Camino. And I thought, yeah, I instantly wanted to do that. And so basically, again, I started, I joined. So it's a company called Sail the Way in Spain, and they do this rally every June, kind of late June. And so they sail across northern Spain. And I met them in, I started off in Mushia. So we sailed around Captain Finisterre, which is very special. Um, having walked that area and yeah we kind of sailed for three or four days the part I did and I loved it it's great camera it's a great social side to it Fergal because obviously you do your sailing every day and you meet up in the next marina and met some fantastic people I remember so the way it worked was you you sailed for your, your trip and then you do your last 25 kilometers walking to get your Compostela so we walked from Padron into Santiago to Compostela and I walked with like the ex-manager of uh, Carlos Nunez, the famous Galician piper. I just met great people along the way. You know, it's brilliant. And uh, as I say, not a sailor would be nearly inspired to try sailing after after having done it. Um, was there really a, good. A, was there a bunch of boats then? You're saying so the boats would all go yeah. into each harbour. Yeah, it's a rally. So it's kind of, I suppose it's aimed at people who have their own boats. If you just happen to have a 49 niner yacht, you know, in the back <laughs> yeah. but you could also... Um, 
you can what's the word you can rent you can also that's not the word you can charter yeah. a boat from various companies uh, in Bilbao or in up around the area where we were in Galicia that's also possible to do and the company anyway sailed away and they are running it again next June and they're very keen to get some Irish Irish people doing it it's great great fun you know sleeping on the boat six birth and uh, yeah very cozy we had one or two stormy nights. That's lovely, kind of cozy up in your little, your berth. And uh, yeah, but now it is Atlantic sailing. It's not like I made a total mistake. I turned up a suitcase full of, you know. <laughs> Shorts. <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, frothy little numbers and they never got worn at all. It's a, it's the Atlantic. So it could be, it could be quite uh, technical sailing. Like one day we were taken off the boat because it was just too rough. So we went and did our sightseeing that day. So, but then the Galicia has a system of rias, so that's more gentle sailing. So that's more suitable for for less advanced sailors. So really interesting, and anyone who's interested should have a look at sailtheway.es. I think it is. Just looking at it here, and also sailing boats usually symbolic in the Camino Fergal because uh, legend has it that Saint James's remains were taken by boat by two of his disciples. Um, to Padron, I think it was. So that that legend is there, and also for Irish people who say who wanted to do the pilgrimage back in medieval times, they had to get there by sailing from Ireland. Say Brendan is meant to have done the the voyage to do it, and also as you know, there's a great documentary, uh, Camino Voyage, which was Glen Glen Hansard and a, uh, I think it was Danny Shee, the poet, the late poet Danny Shee, who undertook that voyage. That's a really great documentary to watch as well. So yeah, lots of symbolism associated with sailing the Camino. So. And so you, you've walked it in, in loads of directions and you've done the sailing <laughs> and you've also done a bit of horse riding as well. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I was just writing about that. And as you know, we, yeah, we had a lovely gentle horse ride, didn't we? <laughs> in the, <laughs> in the, the vineyards of Rioja. And I was, of course, you know, trotting along saying, well, this is lovely. This is wonderful. And the next thing, I think both our horses bolted, did they? Or mine definitely. Yeah. I was left hanging on for dear life. And I was just thinking the other day, you know, I'm, I'm known as someone who loves my wine. Would, it would have been deeply ironic if I had died trodden <laughs> to death on horse in a La Rioja vineyard. But anyway, it would have been quite fitting. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was literally holding on to the reins for dear life. I thought, you oh, God, uh, just yeah. managed to somehow. I think our guide stopped the horse, didn't she? And yeah. they calmed down and I managed to And we were to going back. towards a ridge, you know, and that was a good 20, 30 feet drop. I'll never forget it. I mean, it was just, we were, we'd been discussing the fact that it was such a lovely thing to do. It was so gentle. It was completely gentle. And the horses were so completely in line with each other. And step, following literally every step of the guide, the, the way the guide went. And I said to the guide, what happened? And she said, maybe the horse saw a ghost. I said, maybe the horse knew she had an atheist on its back. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, exactly. Something like that. But anyway, it's a bit tricky. But yeah, so at this stage I've walked, um, done a little bit of horse riding, sailing, and uh, done a few sections by car as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, And we skipped but, the cycling. They told him there was mention of cycling, but yeah. Well, the- they wanted us to cycle that that ten kilometer uphill route, didn't sure, they? Up to the actually went to Galicia, which is a fabulous. It was a fabulous section of the way, wasn't it? And a gorgeous but, walk, beautiful walk. I mean, that just the. I was just reading, you know, the the, the guidebook, the medieval guidebook. They talked about the um, the Codex Calixtinus. I think I actually bought a copy of it in in Santiago afterwards and read it. Very funny, 
really informative if you had a horse and you needed to know which rivers were clean in the 12th <laughs> century. <laughs> That's basically what it was about. But um, I think the book talked about how Charlemagne got down on his bended knee on arriving into Galicia and gave thanks for the green and pleasant land. And that's exactly, uh, that's how we all felt, I think, yeah. that day. It's beautiful, green, mountainous area. But that hike up to Osobrero is a tough uphill hike. No way I would have done it on a bike. We did see people do it on bikes, didn't we? Yeah, we did. But yeah. you know what? That That's what, made, for me, what made the, the Queen of so special is like each region are so completely different from each other particularly there, yeah. you know, you're going from the Masada, the, the kind of the arid lands, and then you're going up over the mountains and you're riding this green land, like yeah, the green yeah. Spain, they call it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Galicia, green, slow Spain. I mean, for me, and I think you've said in some of your articles, you're just walking through this immense history of the making of Spain. I don't know whether you've seen that BBC4 uh, documentary series, uh, Blood and Gold, the making of Spain. Yeah, and, you know, that's what we did. We walked through, like, Navarra region, um, over the Pyrenees into Pamplona and the whole Navarra region. It's, you know, ancient battlegrounds of kings of Navarra and Aragon and uh, the front line between the Muslims and Christian, Christian battles. All this amazing history and, the you know, the relics of the cathedrals and the cloisters. It's just incredible. And then, as you said, La Maceta, it's just one of the most contentious sections of the Camino because people find it difficult Um it's kind of long stretches of empty road, isn't it? Not many trees, not much shelter if you're walking in summer. Wheat, I think, is the only crop that's grown there. So it's this kind of brown, shaded fields, which I loved. And uh, people say they either find that section uh, meditative or, you know, absolutely mind head-wrecking. And uh, yeah. I think I would find it both. I'd like to go back and do some more of it. Um, yeah. I loved it. And then, as you say, you leave that, you go through Castilla y Leon, cities of Leon and Burgos, both very important cathedrals. And then you passed into Ponferrada, where we saw the great Knight, Knights Templar Castle. <laughs> exactly. Know that's your, your favourite subject. Suddenly you're in green Galicia. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And personally then for you, is there an area that stands out that you particularly love or that you'd recommend? I loved, I mean, for me, one of the standouts on the French way that we did, Fuente Lorena for me was an eye-opener. As you, uh, we were traveling, we had a guide, great guide, Francisco Contreras, who's a, a Camino author, and he just gave us this potted history of the Knights Templar, didn't he? And that, that, that town was founded by a Knights Templar. It was just, I loved all that history. I'd been through that town, that village before, oblivious to the history. So this time it was a real eye-opener to get that, and I absolutely loved that. And I, I would have to say the Northern Way, um, that section I did in Cantabria, Cantabria has these beautiful medieval villages, um, Santillana del Mar, which is not by the Mar, but anyway, uh, beautiful medieval. Another one, Camillas, which is by the sea and has some Gaudi architecture. I love that. I have an ex from Cantabria, so I love that whole area. But also walking from Cantabria into Asturias is absolutely beautiful. I walked as far as Yanes, which is a seaside village, um, passing a little cove called Buelna, which I still think about years later. It's, I think it's six or seven years since I did that section and I still often think about that little cove and just Asturias is beautiful has great food reasonably priced food and these just dotted with all these little seaside villages and I absolutely loved it and I'd love to go back to do earlier sections of the Northern Way which are meant to be absolutely stunning and I'd also like to do the Primitivo which is one of the oldest Caminos and it's a tougher more hilly walk and I'd like to I like my walk so I'd like to go back and do that but yeah they'd be my favorite sections the yeah 
the, the nor- parts of the Northern Way and definitely Puente Lorena I loved. And of course, Santiago Castella, I adored. Yeah. And would I be right in saying for food that it's Galicia that wins for you? I, yeah, I'm a big seafood fan. I have to say, I yeah, the Galician seafood, for example, you know, pulpo, that dish of octopus, it's, I think usually served with a uh, round piece of potato and some pimiento on top. And uh, people always say, well, if if you don't, you can only have that dish in Galicia. You know, you shouldn't really have that dish anywhere else. Personally, for me, the best and most affordable seafood I had was on the Portuguese way. Um, every day I stopped and had a plate of scallops for a tenner or a plate of gambas al pilpil for a tenner. It was just readily available. It was affordable for me and I loved it. I ate so much of the stuff. And uh, Santiago, obviously, great for, you know, that. what's that main street? I think it's um, Via Franco, possibly, can't, not quite sure. But it's just restaurant, tapas bar, tapas bar, tapas bar. It's just go and have your glass of wine, a few tapas. And it's, yeah, yeah I, I love it. I absolutely love the food, yeah. And it's also buzzing because you have all these pilgrims coming in each day that give the place an energy, doesn't it? Yeah, as we watch them, you know, when you arrive into that main square in front of the cathedral, uh, they call it zero kilometre on the French way. And as we saw groups of young Spanish pilgrims singing and celebrating, you know, just full of joy that they had completed their Camino. And uh, yeah, it's a great, great buzz around. Yeah, I love sitting around the squares in Santiago de Compostela, just sitting. There's usually a bit of music on the streets and uh, just sit and take it all in, soak it all up and uh but there's such amazing things to do in Santiago. They're like nighttime tour of the cathedral, rooftop tour exactly. of the cathedral, which I love. I've done that about three times now. I yeah. love it. And there's just so many different things to see and do. But I just love wandering. Exactly. Wandering the streets, watching the people and yeah, uh, yeah soaking up the history, the, the culture. And, and my last question then is just, um, you know, like it's, it's very special. I, the word I keep, I've noticed actually the word I keep using is magical, but the Camino, like what makes it so special or magical? You know, I've walked it both ways. You'd have the purists who say it only counts if you walk with your luggage. You know, people who get their luggage, you can have your luggage transferred from hotel, you know, town to town. And that's not really doing the Camino. I've done it both ways. I've I've carried my bags and slept in the five euro a night albergues. And I've done it the other way, staying in four star hotels. And I enjoy both, Virgil. (laughs) But I think for me, I've always said I love Spain. I love hiking. I love being on the open road. I love that freedom of just every day, just walk eat, sleep, meet people, do it again the next day. It's complete freedom from your normal life. As you said, your mobile phone gets switched off. But for me, the Camino is a sum of its parts. You know, if you, people say, why would you enjoy sleeping in hostels and dormitories with people snoring? And well, you know, it's an experience. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. But it's the sum of its parts. It's not, it can be a religious pilgrimage if you want it to be. It can be a healing, transformative pilgrimage, which is what I wrote in my peace for the Sunday Independent, but it can also be this trip through just this immense and fascinating history of this. Incredible Spain is just such a, an incredible country. Or it can just be about getting together for a holiday with a small group of friends, keep your group small, <laughs> and just being on the road and having fun, having good food. Uh, it's just an experience. Yeah. Well, and yeah, as you said, magical. What did you take from it? Yeah, do you know what you that exactly you've you've summed it up actually perfectly because that's what I got from it. That um what maybe what, what I think about makes it so special is that people go to it, maybe they're more open than normal because they've probably read a bit about it beforehand and 
they're nearly being told that you're going to make friends with people. So they're more, more open than normal, I would say, to be open yeah. and to tell their stories, because especially if they watch, say, the movie, the way they realize if they want to experience it like that, they're going to have to contribute. So I, I, that's my guess that maybe people are more open to being open when they go on it. Definitely. But yeah. also, you know, it, it's kind of natural. It happens naturally. But as each day you go, you're talking to people who are telling you about how special it is and about how open people are. So that reinforces it and, and it's, it makes it acceptable. So it's it's the beauty of the walking, the history, and also the people that who are open who are sharing their stories. All those things make because, you know, I've done loads of walking where it's just walking in nature or it's just history. Yeah, yeah. Or just people, but this combines it all. I think that's what makes it so yeah. special. Everyone's going through their own experience. I think, and I, I would say, if people are thinking about doing it for the first time, um, obviously, twenty twenty two is an extended holy year, so it's going to be a very busy year. So pick your your moment, especially if you want to do certain sections. That section from Saria into Santiago was very popular for first timers because it allows you to do hundred kilometers and get your Compostela. Um, that will be busy, so try to book for. A spring or I think autumn we were talking about but yeah. also if you're going with a group of friends what we found the first time we did it we had an agreement that you walked at your own pace that's very important and meet up at the end of the day because the Camino can bring out the best of people it can also bring out uh, let's not say the worst of people it can bring out different aspects of people um, so we had a rule that you kind of agree to walk at your own pace you know so that you wouldn't be bickering about well you're going too fast or you, or you left me behind in this village and where, you know, that can happen and people can get quite competitive <laughs> as well. So I would say keep your group small, have an agreement that you walk at your own pace and meet up in the, the next village and have your drinks and dinner together and uh, book into the albergues together. And uh, yeah, just have have lots of fun and and mix it up. Stay some nights in an albergue, stay some nights in small hotels. We, we often do that 20 euros a night each. And treat yourself, if you feel like, it's to a four-star hotel. We stayed in a great four-star in Pamplona, didn't we? The, which is an old uh, convent. And, I mean, I loved that. I'm, getting, I'm not, you know, I'm no spring chicken anymore. So I love the fact that you can have a little bit of a treat and a bit of uh, luxury and your own bed and your own bedroom. <laughs> and even, do you know, a tip I would give to people, like something we did is we eat lunch in a, in a parador. So you mightn't stay in the parador, but you can go yeah. in there for lunch and experience the atmosphere of the place and get a gorgeous lunch. Or even around Scaval is that place where we the first place we stayed in was next awesome. door to the old Burge, you know, and that was yeah. very it was very cheap, but it was a lovely hotel. Yeah, know? yeah, we stayed. We had lunch that day. That was the Parador in Santo Domingo del Calzado. Exactly. Again, I mean, you asked me about highlights of the French Way. It's an absolute. It is a jewel in the crown. It's a beautiful little village, beautiful, and the cathedral or the monastery, just stunning, and the history, absolutely stunning, and of course the legend of the. The legend of the pilgrim. We won't tell people. We leave them to find that out for themselves. That the chicken coop. The uh, yeah. And, yeah, that was that part. And the other thing we did was we had. I think the Parador in Santiago. I've stayed it once. It's absolutely beautiful historic building. It's steeped in the history. An old pilgrims' hospital, obviously built by a, an old uh, Spanish king in the Middle Ages. I think that's. We've been told that's booked up next year. Now yeah. I'm sure people will manage to to get bookies along the way. But we, when we arrived, we went and had tea and cake on the terrace didn't we so that's one way of um, experiencing and just learning a bit of that and I think it's really good idea as well in Santiago to to get to have a guided tour there's so much history in the place 
And uh, not just Camino history and religious history, there's so much cultural history there. It's incredible. So, exactly. yeah. And actually, that'd be a good tip, too, is if you could get guides in other towns as well, because we went into churches and got the history of the place and you you could see it. Pilgrims are just walking by with their head down and they don't realise the history. And I think that really adds to the whole experience of oh. the Camino. Absolutely. As, as I said to you, back in 2005, I walked with friends. I mean, we may have gone into one or two churches along the way, but we were largely oblivious. Our whole focus is on the walking. And, you know, some of the friends were walking 20, you're walking 25, 30 kilometers a day. It wasn't, it was maybe the first time they had done it. So you are very focused on being able to, to do the walking part of it. It's not without its challenges um, yeah. um, for first time people doing it. So Definitely, there were all sorts of, you know, sore legs and aching joints and blisters, foot blisters and stuff. So we we're definitely very focused on that. But yeah, for me, this time around, to have seen all the cultural highlights and the, the different cathedrals and the different eras and all the, the Romanesque religious art. And yeah, absolutely incredible. Absolutely loved it. And I think it, it makes it a much more rounded experience. Yeah. Um, you come away with a lot more, I think. So I definitely recommend. And I think in Santiago de Compostela, there are free guided tours um, certain times each day. And like the rooftop tour of the cathedral, it's so cheap. It's about 12 euros per person. You know, it's, it's very affordable and it's a really nice thing to do. So Because you get to see the whole city. It's not just the church. Yeah. You see the whole yeah. city. You get that overview of the city, which is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So definitely for me, and I'm I'm not religious, so I think I've told you this before, but mm-hmm. I would view that religious history as as yeah, a big, big, massive chunk of fascinating history. And uh, so it's not just religious. And I think they're really telling people these days, Camino can be anything you want it to be. It's, it's not only a religious pilgrimage. Not that I want to take away from people who are doing yeah. it for that reason, because it's it's a very important aspect of it, isn't it? And very important for people who want to make the journey for that reason reasons for doing it yeah and i kind of that's another thing i liked about the camino that maybe in in normal life there isn't as much as that if someone's religious you can talk to them about it or you can be together with a person in a church and i'm getting the history of the church and they might be getting the religious side of it but again that open part where you're under you're both understanding of each other's perspective i like that yeah you've just reminded me actually because when i was there in june um, sailing with Sail the Way. We finished up in Santiago. We had a great day in Santiago. We went to Mass. We went to the Pilgrim's Mass in the cathedral that evening. And one of the women who was on the trip, who I hadn't really spoken to before, she started to tell me a very moving story that her, her mother, she was there with her sister and their mother had passed away and they were doing the, the pilgrimage, making the pilgrimage in honour of their mother. But I, I didn't know the woman at all, really. And she started to tell me this story and we had a good chat and we exchanged phone numbers after actually afterwards and uh, kept in touch a little bit so yeah that that openness is is a big big part of it definitely and over the years I've definitely met people who've yeah been maybe had a relationship end and they're trying to find their feet again or trying to get their confidence back or I think a lot of during the recession back going back to 2008 2010 and afterwards a lot of people lost their jobs and just said are here I'm off and a lot of people I mean, you meet people who've done 2,000 kilometre, you know, journeys. I've met people who've walked from Geneva, you know, so people do it for all sorts of reasons. And it is a great, you know, freeing of the mind to get on the the open road. And, uh, you know, I think what I often write these days is that there's this vast network of communities. You can spend your life 
doing the Camino, people now live on the Camino, don't they? They volunteer in refugios and stuff. Or you find people who just don't want to stop. So they get to Santiago de Compostela and say, oh, I don't want to stop. So they then do the walk out to Finisterre. And then you'll find that they do the walk back from Finisterre. And, you know, there's this incredible, there's a great map that we saw. And there's just an incredible yeah. network of Caminos that are all joining up. And of course, you then have the link to the Via Fanzigena. And, you know, that's a separate thing, but they're all linked. So there's this amazing European network of, of Caminos and different long distance routes you can do. And so now I'm noticing, say, I went to Porto a few weeks after and met our lovely guide, Helder, who was with us in, in Castile Leon. And um, I was going around, but, you know, you could see the Camino shells and the yellow markings in Porto. You know, so you start to notice them. You probably can see them in Dublin if you looked as well. Yeah, well, again, where I spend a lot of time in Catalonia, um, in Spain, and there's a Catalan Camino, which I haven't done yet. And one of the local towns I go to, Balaguer, I often see the yellow, the fleshes of the arrow, arrows, as they call them. And I think that was one of the things we learned on our trip um, from our guide, Francisco, that to really appreciate the history and the culture of the Camino, occasionally the yellow arrows are great. They help you to not get lost. But occasionally you should ignore them a little bit and step off the way to see yeah. some of the very interesting churches and um, monasteries and, and other cultural buildings along the way. And uh, yeah to have a full full experience exactly and i'm actually going to play a clip on the podcast here of um francisco talking about uniste that that church that templar church and that was off the beaten track and that was one of the most memorable things that we did on the whole tour you know it was the beginning of the the hint the first hint we got of the ninth templar uh, history yeah, wasn't it exactly yeah, the hint of what was to come and a fascinating very serene beautiful place as i recall and uh Absolutely fascinating. As Katrin mentioned there, having guides really help to bring the history and they offer explanations of the symbolism of the Camino and they bring it to life. We were really lucky to have Francisco Contrera, who is a Camino legend and he's written a best-selling guide to the Camino. Francisco and the other guide, Ursula, brought us to a church at a crossroads of the Aragon and French ways of the Camino. This church like so many places on the Camino, it was full of history and myth and symbolism, including unofficially being linked to the Templar Knights, a topic that I love. I want you to get a feeling of how passionate people are about the history and myths of the Camino. You're going to hear now a short clip of a discussion between our guides Ursula and Francisco and a local historian at a church at called Unate, which has a magical quality about it that you only find on the Camino that combines history, religion, mysticism, and myth. So it's just a short clip now. But for me, this is special. This place is quite special, and I want to because I know him, and I, he has told me that this, for him, has a special meaning because he spent that night here. Because he just get here, it used to be a hostel there, uh, that house where we stand used to be a hostel. But when he arrived 16 years ago, that was closed, and he arrived at night, and so suddenly the, he found this open. Nobody there. He was walking with another three ladies, and they spent the night here. Imagine, no benches 16 years ago, no lights. So he feels as a pilgrim of the middle, medieval time. It was his first uh, 
walk, camino. 16. After 15 years, he's gonna find. He's gonna be here in the same place with some Irish journalists. <laughs> and it's important to know there are different books, different visions here. Sometimes there are people coming here doing some rituals. But we have documents about Templar, Encomienda Templaria, in just close to here, no? just in Puente la Reuna. Frank says, there was a time that the Templars were kicked kick out. Quick. Yes, they kicked out. The That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. So the, the documents might be destroyed. That was, we oh. don't find. They said that document they were persecuted one time at once. So that's why nowadays we don't find those documents. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. But for the archaeological people, the people that study the study documents, you know, books, or where is it written? Where is it uh, says okay, it has this vision. So the important thing here is the importance of these chairs and. The importance is unique, it's unique. And probably these discussions or these, not, not discussions, I mean, these different views, no, yeah, these different views, estoy explicando, yeah. So this, so probably this is the importance of this church. This place creates a passion. Yes, create a passion, one passion, another passion. but. This is something for everybody who visit this. No, it's the face of the Sabana Santa. The face of a carnero. The face of a carnero, right? Yes, I knew that. The carnero. Another time, another time. Do you know what? It's always good, see, like just say, it's always good to know myths as well as factual because you learn a lot yes yes, so yes, yes, yes. you should always uh, there's nothing wrong with talking no, about no, that's because there's always we, truth in for myths. me it's quite interesting knowing them for me I'm learning more and more and having mm -hmm. this uh, it's, it's quite interesting for me being yeah. a curious people you know yeah. simple curious it's, it's quite interesting this is the magic of the way it's different this este lugar is different yeah sea templario o sea del santo sepulcro es esa energía es es el lugar de montañas y de cruce de caminos entonces valles leire aragón leire es diferente es muy especial para mí es muy especial My last interview today now is with American Curtis Williams, who has written many articles on the Camino for the Catholic Herald. Curtis tells us now all about the history of the Camino. Curtis, you're, you're very welcome to the podcast. I read a brilliant article of yours in the Catholic Herald, sort of summed up perfectly the, the history of the Camino and how it came about and how it grew again in the 20th century. So I just wanted to ask you about that. Um, so you started off, I mean, for people who are listening to this podcast who don't know about the history, you know, they know about the Camino. But I mean, Santiago, St. James, the, the, yeah. the, the Compostela is the star. So St. James of the stars. Like, how, how did it come about, this Camino? Um, well, the, the, actual, the actual pilgrimage was born following the rediscovery of St. James's tomb 
in the early ninth, ninth century. And the tradition that comes down to us is that obviously that James and some companions after Christ ascended into heaven and he sent the apostles out to, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, there is a very old tradition that says that uh, the apostles divided up the, the known world at the time, most of which was covered, the Mediterranean part of which was covered by the Roman Empire, and that they came here to Hispania, James and several other companions, and that he preached here, didn't have much success, ended up going back to Jerusalem, and that's where he was beheaded by, by King Herod, the grandson of the one in the Christmas story. And, uh, and then his disciples took his body and sailed back to Spain uh, and buried him in the northwest corner of Spain, one of the areas where he had, he had labored, according to the tradition. And then the tomb was lost, you know, with the passage of time and um, the end of Roman power in, in the peninsula, the tomb was lost. And so in the early 19th century, there was a hermit, a Christian hermit living in the area who had an apparition one night, uh, the sound of angels singing and a star shining brightly on top of a, a little hill near where he was living. And he went up and he discovered the tomb and he called the Bishop of Iria Flavia, which was the nearest city, um, who came out, Th Th uh, Theodomir, came out, Bishop Theodomir came out, dis discovered the tomb, sent word to, um, to the king in Asturias, King Alfonso, and so the, the, the first pilgrimage route was literally the king traveling from Asturias, which was the only part of Spain which had remained free of Moorish control, okay, traveling from the, 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 the city of Oviedo in Asturias down to um, this woodland area, this, this rural area near Iria Flavia, where the tomb had been discovered. And they confirmed the they confirmed the discovery of the tomb according to the tradition, the identity of the occupants, and that set things in motion. You know? And then it grew. So from the ninth century on, over over medieval times, the popularity of the trail grew. Yeah, it it, it um, obviously we don't have lots of we don't have lots of. Um, um, well-detailed records of the earliest pilgrimages, and, and almost certainly it was a local pilgrimage initially, okay? So it would have been that corner and the, 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 from Asturias and from Galicia and things like that. But word of the rediscovery um, went to the Pope in Rome, obviously, and it spread throughout Europe. And the earliest recorded, um, unless there's been some research that I'm unaware of, the earliest recorded uh, pilgrimage from outside of Spain is um, Bishop Gottescalc in the year around the year 950. Okay, um, he traveled with a large group of pilgrims. Um, he was uh, from Le Puy, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but uh, well, he was from Aquitaine. No, excuse me, he was from Aquitaine. Anyway, he traveled there with a large retinue of pilgrims and servants. And that's the earliest one that we have, like, really clear recorded. So by the middle of the 10th century, within a century, it, had, it was obviously drawing pilgrims from all over Europe. And then in the 12th century, the French route opened up as the Moors moved down. Or... The Camino was very important in, um, in the history of the Christian kingdoms in the north of Spain. 
um, particularly like the Kingdom of Navarre, which is where I live uh, here in Pamplona, um, because it drew, it kept, it kept these tiny Christian kingdoms which were struggling for their survival against um, the, more, the more powerful and wealthier Moorish kingdoms to the south of the peninsula. It kept them in contact with the Christian, the Christian countries of the north, the Christian kingdoms of the north. And the kings, seeing the, the pilgrim flow and the pilgrim traffic, they soon realized the advantage of um, the advantages that the Camino brought economically, also for repopulating towns that had been reconquered from the Moors and they needed to attract populations. So they would offer privileges and rights to anyone willing to come and settle in these towns in order to sort of solidify their frontiers, etc. So while the earliest pilgrims um, may very well have struggled along the northern coast of Spain in the ninth century, and again, we don't have a lot of a lot of really clear records of that, but we do have traces of those pilgrims in all the, the places along the north of Spain. Um, yeah, by the 10th century, the French route had become the main route. You know, pilgrims would cross either um, at Rontes Valles, which, you know, uh, is in the west of, southwest of France, northwest of, of Spain, well, not northwest of Spain, but where Spain connects to France. And also over there further east, they would cross over in the kingdom of Aragon um, at the Somport Pass. And then the two routes would join in Puente la Reina. That became the route really by the middle of the 10th century, the main route, okay? Especially because it was easier. It, it was much easier. And a line that really stood out in your article was you said the allure and popularity of the pilgrimage to Compostela throughout medieval Europe is, is difficult to overstate as the influence it had on forging a common European identity. So it wasn't just important in, in uh, Spain, but throughout medieval Europe, this yeah. pilgrimage. Yeah, well, yeah, and we, it's hard to imagine Europe in the Middle Ages for a lot of people, but <clears throat> a European identity was, wasn't based, I mean, we're, we're used to the nation states and that sort of thing, and I'm Spanish, I'm French, I'm English, I'm whatever. Um, but the, the common identity that Europe had in that period of medieval history was it was Christendom, okay? It was united with a common faith. There still hadn't been the Western schism that separated the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. There still hadn't been the Protestant Reformation um, that separated the Western Church into Protestant and Catholic. So there was a common Christian identity amongst all of these kingdoms. Obviously, in the 10th century, not every corner of Europe had yet been um, fully Christianized. Um, and the, but the Camino did contribute to, contribute to maintaining that common identity because, well, for example, the route across the, the north of Spain is called the French route just because of the vast number of, of uh, French pilgrims that, that poured across on their way to Santiago de Compostela but all the way up in Germany, in Sweden, in the Netherlands, in Poland, there are all places associated with the pilgrim's route to Santiago de Compostela. Because um, it was the third most important site in Christendom. And for Northern European pilgrims and pil pilgrims from the center of Europe, it was easier to get to than the other two, the other two being Jerusalem and Rome. 
Jerusalem was just too far away. You had to be very wealthy to get there. And it was very dangerous because of the occupation of certain areas, especially the Holy Land, by, by the, uh, the Arabs, by the, the, the Muslims. And um, Rome was obviously appealing because that's where St. Peter and Paul, St. Paul were, were buried. But you had the, that little obstacle called the Alps, yeah. you know, and that was, that was quite a formidable obstacle for a lot of people. You know, a lot of pilgrims obviously did go. But Santiago de Compostela became um, the option for a lot of people from the north of Europe and from the cent center of Europe. You know, it was an apostolic tomb too. So it had sort of an, any shrine that had connection with Jesus, be it like Jerusalem, because that's where he lived and died, um, or Rome because of Peter and Paul or any apostle connected with him. Those were the most important shrines for medieval Christians. And in true medieval times and into the, you know, the 15th, 16th century, the numbers were growing. And then, but then the numbers, you know, I presume with the Reformation and Protestantism, et cetera, that the numbers yeah. start to reduce. So by the, the 18th century, the numbers, as you say, were down to a trickle, the number of pilgrims. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Protestant, the, the Protestant Reformation and then the wars of religion that followed them that followed it, I should say, um, that obviously had a tremendous impact. Now, in the northern countries, which, which many of which went, went over to the Protestant faith, um, obviously they took a very dim view of devotion to saints and a very dim view of, of uh, things like relics and, and those things, writing them off as superstition and idolatry. And... Um, you know, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and these these fellows were especially severe with their with their followers about um, the uselessness and, and the sinfulness of such practices. Okay, so that pretty much cut off a lot of the the pilgrim traffic from those Protestant countries in the north of Europe. Um, no good Protestant in the 18th century would be caught making a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. In 1972. Only 72 pilgrims, you know, official pilgrims made the route, which is quite amazing, considering now what we're at. I mean, like in 2019, it was 350,000 pilgrims that made the official uh, pilgrimage and lots more that did bits, you know, pieces of it. So that was 1972, 72 to 2019. We get 350,000 pre-pandemic times. So what happened in between then? Because it just exploded from the 80s. Well, I mean, yeah, in the, 60, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, it was pretty much the realm of academics and history buffs. Um, and certainly along what the route that people walk today, there was memory. These, the, the towns in Spain preserved memory of the, of the Camino. And the, the, few, the, the few pilgrims that would come through, I mean, they, they it's like, they still were recognized as pilgrims and the red carpet was rolled out for them. But it was, it was mainly academics and, and medieval historians and scholars, that sort of thing that were, that were doing it. Um, um, and then sort of you had a, this convergence of events in the late, uh, starting in the late, very late seventies, early eighties. I think probably one of the first ones is, or was uh, when John, Pope John Paul II 
decided to go to Santiago de Compostela and he actually went there twice. One, um, one was in 1982, which was a holy year in Santiago de Compostela. Okay. And that year that, you know, there were the, the, the numbers had been growing. Okay. There were about 1800 or 1900 pilgrims that year who got their Compostelas in the cathedral office was so still a very minuscule number compared but then Pope John Paul's apostolic visit there sort of blew it open to the, to, to the attention of the wider world. And then a few years later, because he made a very sort of um, impassioned speech there, pleading with Europe to remember its roots, you know, to, to recover its Christian identity and remember, remember its roots. Okay. And then a couple of years later, sort of in 1985, the United Nations, the UNESCO World Heritage um, Organization, declared San, the city of Santiago de Compostela a world heritage site. Okay, and that was sort of in the years when Spain was just was just starting to get it was it was moving toward joining the European Union. So obviously there was a big pu push on the part of the Spanish government. Um, uh, to get a lot of to get a lot of sites in Spain recognized and protected as world heritage sites, and Santiago was one of the early ones, um, and so that drew its that drew attention as well. Um, and then in 1980, I think it was 1989, Pope John Paul II actually wound up coming back, and he came back. He he had the first world, I think it was the first World Youth Day was held in Santiago de Compostela in 1980, 1989. Um, and so, and that just, that just blew the doors off of it because all of a sudden you had all these young people hiking along at least the last sort of stretch of the Camino and, and um, in Santiago to see Pope John Paul II. And after that, it was, it was just sort of no stopping it. And the Galician government invested a lot of money to prepare for the papal visit. The Galician government sort of when they saw the potential that Santiago had, thanks to that papal visit, the next holy year was going to be 1993. And they poured an enormous amount of money with help from the European Union into developing an infrastructure in Galicia of free albergues. That just said everything, that, that put the seal on everything. Really, that was the first big boom year. That was the big turning point in the numbers walking the road was sort of that holy year of 1993. And after that, it's just, it's just been on the increase ever since. So could you have imagined, you know, doing your first Camino back in the early 90s to now, the growth of it? No, 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 no. And it's a completely different experience now. Um, it's a completely different experience Um and I suppose some, a lot of people moan about how different and how much it's changed, but there's no point. I mean, um, there's no way for it to be the experience that it was in the 1990s, uh, not only because of the numbers, but just because of technology. I mean, when I first came, there, was, there were no even mobile phones to be had on the Camino. Um, there was no internet. And so when those things were developed, it was only normal that the pilgrims were going to use them in order to navigate along the Camino, as well as it's been a, it's been a huge boon. There's, there's areas that you pass through now on the Camino that when I came through the first time, they were dead. They were abandoned villages. And now they, the, the Camino has brought life back 
to those villages. And then I'm thinking, especially in the Bierzo region of the Camino between sort of Astorga and Ponferrada, um, there's vi villages there like Santa Catalina de Somoza and Rabanal del Camino and El Acebo, you know, and other little, little villages after you leave Astorga that um, they were just very poor and filled with dilapidated abandoned houses and maybe, you know, a dozen old old folks still living there because that's where they'd lived all their lives. But but now, you know, they're filled with bars and restaurants and albergues and and um, uh, bed and breakfast hotels. And, you know, it's, that's a blessing for the people that are there. They, you know, they, they, they can make a living, you know. So um, I'm not of the opinion, I'm not of the opinion that, that it's all bad now, that the commercialization of the Camino is just a bad thing. You know, people have a right to make a living and a need, not just a right. They have a need to make a living. So Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Curtis, for that, for the history, for people. I think people are very interested in that. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for asking me to talk to you. I enjoyed meeting you when you were here, and I look forward to seeing you back on the Camino at some point. Exactly. I hope you enjoyed those interviews today as much as I did. I have my final Camino episode next Tuesday when I, I will share interviews with people I met along the pilgrimage and I asked all of them one simple question, why is the Camino so magical? I really look forward to sharing those answers with you next week. Take care. Bye. You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgo.